Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Take your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 4. Looking at the one seated on the throne today through God's word. At graduation, at least at college graduations, usually there's that level of honor that's bestowed upon those who forsook their college football season and studied. Didn't go partying, but actually went to school to learn and do well. That was not me. My fall season was always worse. My grades were always worse in the fall than in the spring. Um, That was football's fault. But uh, you got cum laude, right? Magna cum laude and then summa cum laude. And then the rest of us, thank you, laude, right? Where's my percussionist? He goes down too early every week. I have a problem with chapter four because it really is a moment where the highest giving of praise goes to the one on the throne. And I want to just say, thank you, Lord. But uh, I don't want to say it irreverently, but God is the only one who deserves that highest level of praise and worship because he is seated on the throne. That kind of praise is reserved only for him. What Revelation chapter 4 contains is John's very best effort to write down the vision that he received in this moment of the throne room of heaven and of the one who is seated on that throne. So I'm going to read for you Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, my door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Fathers, we read this morning, we clearly see that the good keeps getting better. Lord, our Lord, how majestic you are. How majestic is your name. Father, we thank you for your word, which reassures us that when all seems lost, your plan is at work. So, Father, as I often pray, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, provide for us. And what we are not yet, make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter four and five will be in chapter five next week, really do provide us a glimpse of the glory of the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked God a very bold request, and he said, please show me your glory. A simple request, but a very complex and profound request. But all he requested to see was the glory of God. And God did not allow Moses to see everything in that moment. He covered the eyes of Moses and hid him in the cleft of the rock while God's glory passed by. And once he passed by, he took his hand away and allowed Moses to see his back. But what Moses didn't get to see that day, John gets as much a glimpse as Isaiah or Ezekiel in Revelation chapter 4. John is invited into the throne room of heaven to see, and he's instructed to write it down. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are challenging. There's some odd-looking creatures that we have never seen before. There are lots of eyes watching, (laughs) lots of wings. And they challenge us because it stretches our mind. It stretches our imagination. And yet, at the same time, we have to be careful when we read through a chapter such as four and five and the rest of Revelation not to make such an image in our mind that we begin to worship that image because we're instructed not to do that. But what chapters four and five do for me, as they did for me years ago when we preached through this and they still do today, is that they challenge my worldview. And they'll challenge your worldview. And they'll challenge your view of God and just what's happening today. 
What you also see in chapters four and five, and you'll see in the rest of the Revelation, is somewhat of a limit on human language. The word, the word is inspired, it's not wrong. There's no error there. But I think it's limited by our language. I think John must have been so overwhelmed that he got down as much of it as he possibly could, trying to relate to us things only he and a few others have ever seen with words describing, using things that we see or can see on an everyday basis. These two chapters also give us the why of worship. When you read chapters four and five together, this is the truth of worship. It's as if the Holy Spirit has called out to John, saying, John, you're on the island of Patmos, and not everything is as it may appear down there on earth. John, the world is not run amok as you think, because God is on his throne. John, I'm about to show you how things really are. And as John sees, his worldview and his view of God is radically different. Corey Tinboom said it well, there is no panic in heaven. There's panic on earth, but there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. It will challenge your worldview, and it will challenge your view of God. And so Jesus invites John into the throne room of heaven with an invitation to visit the throne room of heaven. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, the first voice, he said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After this refers back to what we read in chapter 1, where the exalted vision of Jesus Christ in verses 9 through 20, after the seven letters to the churches have been written, this is why it's chapter 4, not chapter 3, because chapter 3 is the end of those chapters, but I want you to notice one thing about verse 1. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. When we left chapter 3, where was Jesus? Where was he portrayed? What was he doing? Knocking on what? A closed door. Quite the difference to see now that John is invited into the throne room of God and instead of a closed door to the church, there is an open door where Jesus invites him in. And the voice he heard, it's the same voice he heard back in chapter one. It's not somebody new. It's not somebody different. It's still like a trumpet which grabs your attention and the invitation is extended to John to come and visit this throne room. Friends, we must read this. And as we read this, we must let it adjust our worldview. Today, it takes one post on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or one tweet on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, one news cycle 
to completely blow a story out of proportion. Because we have a limited point of view. When I say we have a limited point of view, all we have are the opinions that we form with the information we're given. And usually that information is filtered down through whatever issues or politics or sports or social issues that we hold near and dear to our hearts or those that we're listening to hold near and dear to their hearts. And so, because we're human, we tend to give more credit to those with insider information, even though the insider still has a limited point of view. You see, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 points us to the arrogance of humanity because we always think or we always assume that what we think about issues or circumstances is correct and everyone else is wrong. I was with a dear friend on Friday and he made a comment that I used on my family yesterday and I'm going to keep using it. I've never made a mistake. I thought I did once, but I was wrong. (laughs) But that really is how we think. We know the truth. Our viewpoint is correct. And we'll try to stir everyone else and steer everyone else in our direction. And if John and the churches don't stand their ground and contend for the faith and keep trusting in Jesus, we wouldn't be here today. John's viewpoint and his worldview, already changed by Jesus, gets a tweaking, a tightening, if you will. John gets this amazing perspective from a vantage point of the one who created and controls. What does John see? First, he sees that God is on his throne. He sees the one seated on the throne. This is one of the key themes of the entire book of Revelation. And if you miss it, you'll you'll get off chasing rabbits that some dude in San Antonio says is important. You're counting blood moons all of a sudden. You're counting prophecy guys on YouTube saying all kinds of nonsense. You're following the wrong crowd, okay? You've got to not miss this point, that God is on his throne. John is on the island of Patmos, exiled by the emperor or the local governor, and there is a throne room that he is invited into. That throne room is in heaven, And at the center of everything in that throne room, there is the Ancient of Days, the Glorious One, seated on that throne. Let that sink in for a moment. As the one who is writing this to us and to those seven churches, sitting on the rocky island of Patmos, struggling to survive, put there by a man who sat on his throne. But what John sees is a throne room that is vast. In contrast to the little throne room where he was sentenced, this throne room is majestic. 
And the one who sits on the throne in this majestic throne room is the one who wields true authority and power. You'll see a similar vision in Isaiah chapter 6. You'll see a similar vision for Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, where they're both ushered in. And what we have to remember as we're reading this is that there, his intent is not to paint you a picture or a photographic depiction of what's going on, but rather that John is giving us the imagery and the symbolism here to help us see what he's seeing in his vision. There is a kaleidoscope of color happening. You remember one of those little things when you were a kid looking around and seeing how it always changed? Beautiful colors, sights, sounds, smells, different creatures all around. And what we read as we, as we get into this is that chapter four and five should create for us a sense of awe and wonder. And as we continue to read and go through the rest of Revelation, chapter four and five must always sit in the, in the center of what we're reading because there's some crazy stuff happening. But we always come back to this, that he is on his throne. John, captured in amazement. I love this moment. Captured in amazement, awestruck by what he's seeing. Mind working overtime. Maybe his heart is beating fast, pounding in his chest, because just like Isaiah, he has a, a very much an awareness of where he is. You remember that story of Isaiah as he's in the throne room. He cries out, woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips. And when he hears the angels, the seraphim singing or saying, holy, 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 he realizes he's in the presence of a holy God and he himself has not been made holy. He is a sinner. And he knows what should happen to him because of that. And yet by God's grace, he brings the coal over, touches Isaiah's lips, and he is allowed to hear the call of God upon his life. He is in the throne room of God. This is where worship begins when we see God as He is. This is not my thought, it's in quotes, and I failed to write down who said it, but apparently it was good, so I wrote it down. Any effort to worship God in the deficiency of awe and wonder is destined to failure. If you walk in this room on Sunday morning, and God has not captured your heart, the awe and wonder of the one, the ancient of days, sitting on his throne in the throne room and everything else revolving around him and not yourself, then your worship is destined to failure. Our worship as a church will fail. It will fall short. We are not worshiping in spirit and in truth if he is not in the center of everything. John gives us a list of jewels to help us understand what he's seeing. Some have ascribed meaning to each and every jewel. I don't know that that's necessary, but it does give us a big picture or a cumulative effect, which is meant to depict God's glory, his majesty, and splendor. I would encourage you to find a resource, perhaps, that um, has, has all of those listed out for you. John wants you to try to best, your best to visualize what he's seeing and describing and writing. If we could imagine in our, in our mind the flashes of brilliance of, of the reds and greens, as the light, the glory of God shines upon his crown in the noonday sun, sparkling, 
blinding at times. And then we add a rainbow resembling an emerald. I've never seen an emerald rainbow. I've only seen the one we always see. But that rainbow is an eternal reminder of God's covenant promise to his creation. There we see the one, the ancient of days, the holy one, the one who will judge seated on his throne with authority. And yet there is the reminder of his mercy and his grace. If we lose our capacity, or if we have lost our capacity to wonder and to imagine, friend, there's probably not a song out there in this world that's gonna stir your heart rightly because your view of God is too small. This is why idol worship was against God's will. We form idols that we can control, but friend, they are much too small and impotent to cover our greatest need which is sin. And here, this invitation to see the great big God of this universe, we get to read and hear the words of John communicating, God of wonders, beyond our galaxy, you are holy. You are holy. Precious Lord, reveal your heart to me. You are holy. You are holy. And what John has next before him is an invitation into a worship service or a time of praise to the one who is seated on the throne. He gets an invitation to praise. In verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What we find is that his attention is drawn to the 24 thrones and the 24 elders on the throne, all in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, the 24 elders are unknown, but there's some really good ideas about who they are. Where I land on this is that they represent the church, and within that are those of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's where I take it. There's others who would disagree with that, and that's okay. We're all taking our best shot at it. It's because it's not about who they are, but it's about what they're doing. That wins. We see these 24 elders worship the Lord. We see them in total and complete, a total and complete nature of their worship. And it invites us into a time of of praise as well, a similar time of praise. Not only do they offer their words to the one who is on the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, but also they take off their crowns before the throne. That is an act of subordination. They're submitting themselves, acknowledging that they are under the ancient of days. That common sign of subordination back in the day when a kingdom was conquered was to remove, the conquered king would remove his crown and lay it at the feet of the conqueror. Thus, they do not claim equality with God or superiority to God, but the authority and power rest with the one seated on the throne. And when we praise the Lord, we don't come to him seeking what we can get from him, 
Even though there are a great number of our songs today that we praise and sing on Sunday where it seems like that is the goal. Even some of the old hymns were written that way, man-centered rather than God-centered. And it is the problem with the prosperity gospel. It is the problem with the health and wealth and word of faith movement that they approach God in their prayer life demanding because of their faith God give them what they want. But the elders teach us a priceless lesson. In order to find life, you must lose life. You must give up any authority over your own life and lay it at the feet of the one who is on his throne. Also, this scene provides the primary concern of heaven, which is what we will be doing. Okay? You're not going to have the most beautiful golf course to go hit the links in heaven. You're not going to have the greatest kitchen if you love to bake and cook and do all those things. God ain't giving you a kitchen so you can bake all the live long day. Or whatever you think you're going to be doing. Whatever you love. I can't wait to get there. Oh, is that, we'll see so-and-so, so-and-so. We're going to da-da-da-da-da. The primary concern of heaven is what you read in Revelation chapter 4. This is what we will be doing. We will be joining with the elders and the living creatures. We will be laying down our crowns at the feet of the one who is on the throne. We will be worshiping him. And John gives us three reasons why we are to worship the Lord in this way. One, we've already kind of covered it, but it is still true. God is in charge. This is why we join with the 24 elders, because God is in charge. John first sees the throne. When you see the throne, you understand that that symbol, that throne, carries power. It carries authority. It's not an empty throne. There is someone on the throne. Everything in the throne room centers around the one on the throne. And it is by design that John has written it this way, by God's leading and his inspiring him to pin this, to write down that it is not about what is happening and what's there, all the, descriptors that, the descriptions that he gives, but it is to point our eyes to the one who is seated on the throne. Every part of our life, church, must revolve around the one on the throne. And that's not something new. Back, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, see now that I, even I, I am he, God said, and there is no God beside me. He said, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He is the one on the throne. Everything revolves around him. God's plan de demands our praise. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. God's person, his appearance, everything calls us to praise him. You see it in verses two and three, that there God is enthroned and praise is happening. The power of God demands our praise. Verse five, in that God is encircled by the elders and the living creatures. What are they doing? With flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder happening all around, God's not playing bowling. Please stop telling our children that God is bowling or he's playing golf or whatever, building your mansion or whatever we might say that thunder is. Just call it what it is. It's thunder. And it's all around the throne of God. 
And there are seven burning torches around that throne. That's the perfection of the Holy Spirit. He is there. The fiery torches, the seven spirits of God, that is all of the work of the Holy Spirit. What a vision he is seeing. Not only is God in charge, but we also worship and praise him because God is holy. Three times, twice actually, so six times. By two different groups. We'll see it again later in this, in this book. But we'll hear it, holy, holy, holy. And then the, letter, the second group, so it is three times. The second group, worthy are you. They're giving honor and power and glory to the Lord, but we hear it, holy, holy, holy. By the four living creatures, it's calling us to the holiness of God. They're odd-looking creatures. Don't try to draw them. You're going to scare yourself. But John is trying to describe what they're like. Perhaps he's giving us a, a glimpse into to some characteristics of God. The lion, that God would be perfect in his authority, strength and honor. He's noble, respected. The ox, and that he's perfect in his activity. Kind of like a servant. We certainly know Jesus as a servant, exercising his power for the good of others. The one like a man, he's perfect in majesty. Friends, man is the climax of creation. Man is rational, intelligent, spiritual. The eagle, that he's perfect in his deity and his goodness, or his godness, excuse me. And that the wings would symbolize that he's ready to go. That's what's there, but you'll see again, what are they doing? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. We can barely muster 30 minutes to an hour and a half of worship, and they're constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, that double repetition of a word brings emphasis, but the triple repetition points out an incomparable trait. He calls attention, and it ought to grab our heart to God's holiness. Day and night, night and day, at the center of the universe, dwelling in an unapproachable light, is God surrounded by unending praise. And when the four living creatures sing, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, those elders fall down and they cast their crowns before him, saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The challenge here is our worldview, that what happens in worship, when we're alone, as we live our daily life, and as we gather on Sunday, ought to be a, an earthly reflection or expression of what's happening in heaven. That's the challenge when you walk in those doors every Sunday morning or every time we have a service. We should be thinking, okay, I'm coming in to worship the Lord. He is high and seated on his throne. He is holy. Lord, help me. Give me the voice. Give me the heart. Give me the mind to focus on you and to fall at your feet and cast my crown before you. Now, why are they in this moment also not only because of his holiness, but why else are they worshiping? Well, in verse 11, they give credit to God for creating all things. He's in charge. He spoke it. It came into being out of nothing. And so they continue to worship because he is the creator of all things. God is infinite in his creative power. And it's on display in Genesis 1 and 2 that he made everything from nothing as he spoke it into being. Friends, he is glorious and creative in his design and he had the ability to make it happen. 
that he alone is the creator. And because he is the creator, he is supreme over all. He is the sustainer over all. Were he to stop today, so would we. Chuck Swindoll had a hard word here when he says, when we miss it, when our focus becomes too horizontal, riveted on people and things rather than on the vertical, centered on God and God alone. What does chapter four and chapter five next week have really for us today? It's vital to us because imagine for a moment you were a partner in the gospel with one of those seven churches in chapters two and three. That Jesus, that you had just heard a letter read to your church from Jesus while you are daily walking through the battle of sin and suffering. Maybe you're a partner in the gospel with one of the churches that's thriving. There were only a handful. Jesus encouraged you to endure. Other churches were compromising the truth, mixing their theology and their doctrine and the gospel with the world. Others were falling into complacency, having lost their first love, and one was about to get vomited out. All of the churches needed encouragement to hold fast to the Lord, every single one of them. And they needed to preach the gospel at the risk of their own life. So how then would Jesus motivate the church to endure suffering? How could God motivate his people to turn away from sin? How does he motivate them to move out with the gospel to share it? How does he motivate us to do that? Revelation chapter 4 and 5. That's how. What Revelation chapter 4 and 5 will show you, one, is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friend, when you cherish the one seated on the throne above anything else, the suffering and persecution that's your answer. So where is your heart? Where is your focus? What's your perspective like? Our God is seated on his throne, yet not bound to that one place. Our sovereign God holds the destiny of the, of the world in the palm of his hand. Do you take that as good news or do you take that as bad news? Because everything that happens is by his design. that glorious time in the history of our nation where the presidential election is coming. Goody, goody, gumdrops. By this time next year, we will have voted on the next president of the United States. So we have several months of mudslinging, political commercials, conventions. Oh. The truth is, the next president of the United States, they don't hold the world in their hands. 
We are fed a lie that our president is the most powerful man in the world. He is not. For there is one seated on the throne. You watch the news out of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't hold the world in his hands. President Putin, President Xi, hold tight Cowboys fans, neither do Jerry Jones. There is only one who has charted the course of history and the future. There is only one charting the course of this church, and he holds the destiny of each one of us in his hand. So you trust your today and your tomorrow to the one sitting on the throne. And you put your eyes and your heart there, and everything else falls away. The second thing I believe chapters four and five call us to ask is have we lost our sense of wonder? In chapter four, God is the only thing that matters. In chapter five, it is only the lion and the lamb that matter. And it brings deep conviction and it raises this all-important question. The elders have laid their crowns down at the feet of the one on the throne. Am I withholding anything from God, even the good things? Am I withholding my time, my mind, my money, my service, most importantly, my heart? Because a proper sense of wonder and a proper sense of humility brings us to this place where like Isaiah and John and Ezekiel, all struck by the truth of who God is and who they are in his presence. Friends, we must never Never question that God is completely holy. And yet when we lose our perspective and our wonder, our sense of awe and wonder, I think it's imperative that we come back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and read it again. And that we keep reading it until God sets it in our heart that this is who he is. The proper perspective brings the reality of the sovereign and holy God who is actively engaged and involved in our lives. That's going to do one of two things. It's going to terrify you, or it's going to comfort you. It's going to terrify you if you're not right with that sovereign God. It's going to comfort you if you know Jesus, because he has paid the price to make you right with that sovereign God. I pray that he will orient your heart on the center of that throne room and that you will never take your eyes and your heart and that you will never let anything in this world take your eyes and your heart off the one who is on his throne. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.